Welcome to Living Blind. I'm your host, Naomi Hazlitt, and this podcast is brought to you by Balance for Blind Adults, located in Toronto, Canada. This season of Living Blind is sponsored by Accessible Media Incorporated. Here at Living Blind, we explore the perspectives and lived experiences of people with sight loss and delve into barriers, challenges, and real-life strategies for living life to the fullest. We often hear about how blind people are a minority within the population, but within that broad spectrum of blindness, there is an even smaller minority of folks who are born with, or develop later in life, both hearing and vision loss. This is known as deaf blindness. We haven't talked about living with deaf blindness on our show before, well, until now. Joining us this month is Barbara Davis. Barbara was born with Usher syndrome, a condition in which a person has both partial or profound hearing loss in addition to progressive vision loss, due to the eye condition known as retinitis pigmentosa, or RP for short. Listeners may recall previous guests on our show who have also talked about having RP. Barbara got her start in advocacy work in 2000 as deafblind intervener services were losing funding and faced being dropped as a service offered under CNIB. She founded the Emergency Intervenor Services Program in 2013 and is currently working with the National Association of Deafblind America on a week-long deafblind conference to take place in 2030 in Atlanta, Georgia, in honor of Helen Keller's 150th birthday. Every spring, Barbara can be found crocheting squares for the Yarn Bombing for Deafblind Awareness Month. When she's not devoting her time to volunteer work, she's busy spoiling her grandchildren in her home in Burlington, Ontario and exploring the outdoors with her husband. And that's one of the biggest things I gathered during my conversation with Barbara, is that when her mind is set on doing something, there's no stopping her. Also for this interview, Barbara joined me with her intervener, Rosita Foley. When I asked a question, Rosita used tactile signing to communicate the question to Barbara, who proceeded to sign the responses back to Rosita. Tactile signing is a sign language that has the messenger signing on the palm of the hand of the receiver. As Rosita received the message from Barbara, she spoke the words to me. So of course, there were some pauses and Jeffrey has kindly edited those out so that when you listen, it will sound just like an interview with a person who uses their voice to communicate. I truly enjoyed interviewing Barbara and it gave me a deeper appreciation for how important intervener services are for the full inclusion of people who are deafblind. And now let's get to it. Today, I'm joined by Barbara Davis. I'm going to let Barbara introduce herself today. Barbara, can you tell the listeners a little bit about you and you know who you are, your journey with vision loss, and anything else that would be good for us to know about you? Okay. Um, yes, I was uh, born uh, deaf and, uh, and visually impaired. Uh, it's called uh, Usher syndrome, B1 which means that um, I was born deaf and also have RP and I continue to lose my vision as I progress in age. Um, in my family, there's five of us and I try, I try to, I'm involved in as much things as I possibly can. And I enjoy, I'm trying to enjoy my life as much as I can. And Barbara, for today's conversation, I believe you're joined by an intervener. Is that right? Yes, correct. Um, right. Um, I, I need to have an intervener because I have no vision field and I cannot hear. So uh, for reading um, or searching things or anything that's not accessible to me 
or uh, leaving the household, I need to have an intervener because I'm not able to walk like straight. I, my, I have really, really bad balance and uh, uh, perception of the area around me. So um, uh, even though I think I'm going straight, a lot of times I'll start going a little crooked and, you know, even just in special like areas just around my house, uh, outside of my house, I'm uh, easily disoriented. So yes, I need to have an intervener with me at all times to get around outside of my household. That's an interesting place to start because I, from my understanding, I thought an intervener was someone who helped a person communicate, but you're saying that your intervener also helps you navigate uh, around the community. Yes, absolutely. Both. Um, you know, when we go to stores, um, they'll uh, give me the visual field of what's out, you know, uh, what to see, what I'll ask her what to look for, or at a doctor's office for communication as well. I usually, for special doctor's appointments or hospitals, I like to have specific interveners that um, are really good at sign language and they're able to make sure that my message is clear and precise. But then I can use other interveners for regular, like uh, outside exercise, walking or grocery shopping. Um, or, but at home, I'm completely independent. I don't need an intervener for anything. Um, but sometimes, you know, if I'll get a, a piece of mail or something like that, that I'm not able to, uh, obviously see, um, so that help me like organize my files and put things away. And that's in that concept that otherwise I'm completely independent in my household. Right. So it's sounds like an intervener can do a lot of different things, but at the end of the day, there's a lot that you're doing on your own as well. Correct. Both. I'm the boss. I tell the interveners what to do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and sometimes also with technology, right? Like we depend on technology, but a lot of times there's, uh, they don't work properly and there'll be pop-ups or kinds of things that I'm not able to fix or get out. Um, so my interveners will need, I'll need their eyes and ears to actually change that. Um, same thing with pairing and dispairing uh, Bluetooth because I, I'm not able to use obviously voiceover. So that's where my issue lies. And a lot of times there'll be pop-ups that I'm not able to read on my Braille display. So I'll need uh, intervener's eyes to help me navigate my technology at times. Um, so I personally, that's why a, a hearing intervener is very helpful for me because they can, then I can use their voice. And uh, there's a lot of clients that actually prefer having deaf interveners with them because they can understand better and they can communicate better with and feel more comfortable with them in their own environment, which I understand. But for me personally, um, I like having that that voice that to make sure that there's clear information and um, and that my message is getting across clearly. You know, a lot of times there's miscommunication. That's one of the biggest issues between clients and interveners. So I find that very important. Mm -hmm. So I want to take a step back for a minute and ask you about Usher syndrome. So you said that it affects your vision and your hearing. What was that like, you know, kind of starting from growing up to adulthood and how did it affect your everyday life? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Usher syndrome, um, it means that you are deaf and you have RP. So people who are deaf, uh, sorry, people who are hearing have RP. But Usher means that you are also deaf and blind. So you have both. So our uh, retinal pigmosis, so where your eye and the retinas, the cells in your eyes, um, become damaged and start to, uh, your visual field starts to tunnel and close away into, and goes away completely. So that's the disease. It's, it's killing at the retinal cells in your eyes and the rods, that area and the cone, the three areas, those cells are your, is what you see, right? So those are damaged by the disease and it's a slow progressive uh, visual disease. 
Um, and that's why they're working on stem cells now to try to fix those stems that are um, destroying the, vis the vision to repair them or get fixed. I don't know, I hear there's some trials in California, so hopefully that's something to look forward for in the future, but uh, it's being deaf and blind. So um, when I was little, um, my parents weren't aware that I was deaf. Uh, they would call me as when I was a baby. They would try to call me and they went to the doctor and they said, you know, Barbara's not answering. Uh, so the doctor would say, so my parents said I was deaf and the doctor said, no, look, look. And they would stand behind me and clap and I would turn around. So they say, she's not deaf, but they didn't realize that when they were clapping, the air would like hit my hair. So I would react and turn around. So finally, <clears throat> I went to go get actual hearing tests done. And that's where they identified that I was deaf. Um, and as I progressed in age, um, around one or two, my mom realized that I just didn't navigate so well visually, um, but it was just small little triggers. So they didn't really notice. Um, when I was five though, um, I was telling my mom things uh, because at nighttime I would say, I can't see, I can't see. So my mom actually took it as a, as I was scared of the darkness instead of like just actually not being able to visibly see what was around me at nighttime. Um, so they actually, uh, in the beginning, they would hold my hand and realize that actually, as I progressed, um, that that just started to get worse and worse. So when I was eight, I went to the doctor and um, I think that's when they actually were able to identify that I had a visual impairment, but they never told me specifically. Um, my mom at that time decided not to tell me because she wanted me to just live life as every other child. But Ooh. I actually believe that was a mistake because a lot of times I did a lot of risky things that I probably wouldn't have done if I realized that my visual field wasn't as uh, the same as my brothers and sisters. Right. So like riding a bike, you know, um, so I would have a tricycle, but my mom would not let me go on us on like a single bike. Like, with, um, so I disobeyed her and said, you know what, I'm going to take my friend's bike and I'm going to go for a bike ride on her bike. And um, I went for a bike ride and I kept doing it without my parents knowing and saying like, look, I did, I figured this out. I did it on my own. I showed my parents and my parents, I, they could see that I was not going straight. I thought I was going straight, but I was just like weaving in and out, like on the sidewalk because I, I just couldn't. Um, so at that, at that time, still, my parents didn't tell me that I had a visual impairment. They just said, no, that I shouldn't, shouldn't ride a bike because it's dangerous. Um but um, when I was 15, I continued to ride a bike independently <laughs> without their consent. Um, but when I was 15, um, I actually ran over a cat. And that's when I realized that um, I didn't hurt the cat. I just realized that that's, uh, I didn't see the cat was there. And I don't know why the cat didn't move, but I just ran it over. Um, the cat was fine, but I just realized that that's not right. Uh, there's something wrong. And um, I was actually playing with a friend. And my friend was trying to get my attention. She was running beside me. Or, you know, when you're running outside and you're, and you can like run and talk to your friend. I couldn't do that. I wasn't able to like run. I'd always have to stop and talk. And I remember my friend at the time realized that, that that's really frustrating. Like I've asked you a question three times and you're not answering me. And at that time I said, no, wait, hold on a second. I didn't even see that you're asking a question. I didn't know. Um, and my friend said, can you see out of your side vision? Like, can you see? over here to the left of you. And I said, yeah, I can see everything. Um, why would you ask me something like that? That's ridiculous. I said, no, I don't think you can see from your side because I'm running beside you and you're not seeing me asking you questions and signing to you. So maybe you should have that looked at. Like maybe you should talk to your parents. Um, so at that time I ran home, I was bawling my eyes out and I ran home and I yelled at my mom and I said, what is happening? 
Um, and I realized that it just hit me and it like really hit me to all the things in the past that I wasn't able to do or I couldn't do like everybody else. And now I understood why, right? Um, I just thought my eyes were the same as everybody else's. I had no idea that my eyes weren't the same, that my vision wasn't the same as everybody else. And at that time, my sister also said the same thing to my mom, that that trying to protect her in a way wasn't, wasn't good because I, sh- I could have been hit by a car, you know, because I was just running around following my friends, just doing what everybody does, right? Um, without any awareness to like actually move my head further to the left and to the right to ensure that I could see my whole visual field. Um, so after that, I was actually pretty depressed uh, for about a week. And then I started to, to change my vision, my, my thoughts and try to make try to make it a positive thing instead of a negative thing. You know, it's been a struggle for sure. Right. Uh, especially like after I had my own children, you know, like my own kids would pick on me and they would like they knew where my visual field was. So they would like sneak around on the floor and crawl. And I say, hey, that is like I can't see that right now that they're bigger. I they get that. They, that was very, uh, a very wrong thing to do, you know. But I know now, obviously, that I'm older. I'm like I can't babysit my grandkids because they'll uh, they'll they'll pull a lot of tricks on me. Uh, so I just like to visit them, keep them from just nice little visits, say hello. But um, I can't actually watch them. So now I'm taking time to myself and focusing on myself and doing things that I want to do in my life. <laughs> wow, that's an incredible story. I'm wondering. Well, I have a lot of questions, but one thing I'm wondering about is once you knew that you had vision loss what happened there did you get any help for that did you learn any new skills can you tell me a bit more about that (sighs) um no i didn't get any help um at that time later in life um so let me think there so i was 20 when i moved to toronto um, and that's when the CNIB, inter- that's when the first time I heard about CNIB intervener services, um, but it wasn't given, the information wasn't given to me clearly. And, you know, like they'll help you do this, they'll help you do that. But it just, I didn't really understand it. it they didn't really explain what an intervener was, what their purpose was, you know, that they're like, that they're, they help you to guide and they help you communicate. They just said, they do this, they do that. But like, I just didn't, it didn't feel comfortable. So then about six months later, um, I met another uh, volunteer, actually a volunteer. And um, that person uh, volunteered on their own. They were 25 and, you know, they were just, they would take me to the grocery store and just help me a little bit. That was when I was 25, sorry. And then when I lived in Oakville and in Burlington, that's when I actually received intervener services from the Hamilton area. That's when I was 25. That was the first time I received intervener services and I learned what it like what it actually is. And I went to to uh, the the camp, the Lake Joe camp. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was scared there because um I saw a lot of different um disabilities and a lot of different and I just misunderstood. Like I mm-hmm. thought that once I was to lose my visual impairment, that that meant mm-hmm. that maybe. I would also have other disabilities that would come along with that. And that's when they showed me that, no, like there's all different spectrums, there's different visuals and there's different disabilities as well, that they have added disabilities as well. Um, And that's when I met my first like born deaf blind um, individuals, which I'd never met before. So that that, that one was a shocker because at that time my visual field was a lot different and I I hadn't been involved in the deaf blind community. So it was very overwhelming, but it was educational. Um, 
And as I grew on, um, you know, they they were trying to encourage me to to take cooking lessons and O&M and those kinds of things. But at that time, I like to do things on my own. I like to do things on my own way. You know, I still continue to this day to cook. I've never, uh, <clears throat> I never follow instructions the way that they do. You know, it doesn't work for me. I like to do, you know, the, the things that I like to do on my own. You know, a lot of times they try to, to encourage you to use the microwave. But for me, like, actually, I prefer to use a stove, you know. My husband luckily does most of the cooking for us now. He likes to do uh, like a lot of advanced cooking that I wouldn't be able to do. So my husband has taken over that task, which I quite enjoy thoroughly. Um, so I'm in charge of cleaning. So, you know, we're a good team like that. He'll do all the cooking. I'll do all the cleaning. Right. And that gets me a lot of different meals that I wasn't able to do before. So it works out for both of us. I was going to ask you what your favorite recipe to cook is. Uh, maybe you can tell me one that you used to cook back in the day. Uh, shepherd's pie, actually, uh, but I make it with chicken, um, and I still make that. Um, but what I can't do is like I can't cook steak, for example, like um, or or on the barbecue. I'm not able to use the barbecue, so my husband will do that for me. Um, but like I'll do fish in the stove. I do that. Um, but now that my husband's kind of like taking the reins, he just kind of mostly does all the cooking. But I'm still able to do it if I want to. Um, you kind of let me stump. It's been a while because he's been making a lot of. He's been taking charge of the menu, so I can't really remember. Let's say yesterday, we as a team, we made a coffee cake, uh, but we did it together. And, but we put like a cream in the middle, like an icing. And so we actually did it together. He like I made the, the dough part, and then he told me what to put in the, the middle part, like the ice icing, I guess. Um, we were following a recipe on the iPhone, but sh- shocking the technique that my technology froze and I wasn't able to use my real display. So he read the recipe for me. It was delicious, actually. It was really, really great. Um, I strongly recommend it. And I really enjoyed it. Um, or like uh, cookies. We make turtle cookies together in September and October. I always make it for my grandkids. They love it. So I always say, I'm like, I can't do it all the time. It's a lot of work. So I, that's expensive, right? Candies, little turtle candies, you have to chop them all up. And they're very expensive. So I usually wait until the fall time. And I do that for my grandkids. They're always asking for that all year round. You know, so... We don't make desserts often, but it's a nice thing to do together sometimes just to share with my family. I think something that struck me in hearing your latest answer is this idea that on the one hand, you seem like a very independent person. You know, you're the boss. You used to ride bikes. You know, you kind of don't let people stop you from doing what you want to do. And one thing I liked hearing about how you're cooking with your husband is that it's not always about getting help, whether it's from your husband or an intervener. It sounds to me that it's more about working as a team, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Um, teamwork is important, right? Um, I try to keep like interveners and husbands are very different, right? So <laughs> yeah. I don't want to d- depend on my husband at all, really. You know, we, I, we work as a team, but uh, I don't want to put any added stress or I want to give him relief like as a as a wife would in a regular relationship right a wife that can go out and do the groceries and do whatever they want and not need to rely on their husband so that's where I really rely on the intervener to be able to give my husband a a full break and allow me to be independent and provide I think this is a good time to mention that you founded an emergency intervener program can you tell us a little bit more about that yes absolutely 
Oh, that was a struggle. Um, when I joined the MCSS um, a few years back, um, I had a lot of great ideas and I brought a lot to the table. And, um, you know, I was the only person who was using Braille display at the time that was fully blind. Um, and at that time, I was saying, we really need intervener services. And they kept saying, yes, we have intervener services, like emergency intervener services. But what I was trying to explain is something different, like something that's not short term, that's something that's permanent, like a setup system. And at that time, um, MCSS wasn't aware that there wasn't something like that in, set in place. They, it wasn't really ever discussed. So I advocated for that. I continued to fight every single meeting. I kept saying this is incredibly important to have access to emergencies when a deafblind person is in an emergency situation. So it was set up finally in 2013, you know, because anytime I had an emergency, I'd always have to contact my children. And that's not really fair if my kids were working or doing something, you know, like I shouldn't have to depend upon other people. If I had an emergency, you know, um, I need to be able to access whatever I need on my own without depending on other people. You know, my family was very proud of that. Um, so it actually came into fruition in 20, no, sorry, 2000, 2001, 2000, uh, I believe uh, was when DeafBlind Service, this is a difference, uh, DeafBlind Services was having issues um, in 2000 and they um, were not going to be part of CNIB anymore. And that's actually where my first advocacy taste came from. Um, and I started to fight to try to ensure that DeafBlind Services continued and that office and I started fighting and uh, that's when I made a lot of mistakes and I learned from that and I've grown from that but it's definitely given me uh, a taste for it so now I've joined everything I can you know uh, going with like all kinds of disabilities not just deaf blindness uh, physical disabilities as well making sure that everybody has uh, access in any which way I'm on multiple boards I'm on a couple boards in the states as well Canadian boards and now I'm actually I'm part of the committee in the United States um, and we're setting up a conference. I will be the head of the conference in 2030. So eight years from now to set up this conference to plan. So that's that's exciting. That's a new thing. Um, and they took me. I'm the only Canadian person on their board. And they've seen um, what a great leader and what I've been able to bring to the table so far already in the last year that I've joined their committee. So why not? You know, I don't want to sit around. I want to I don't want to get bored. I want to be able to participate and be a the contributing member of society. Um, just now in June, actually, I just went to the Helen, Helen, help, sorry, Helen Keller's birthplace. I took a tour around. It was beautiful. And I met um, a lot of people. And, um, you know, that's when they invited me to be a part of their community. And that's where we started uh, this idea about, and I, uh, sorry, and I, I met the, the couple there that started on their own committee. They are both deafblind husband and wife they're both deafblind fully deafblind I thought wow like that's incredible mm -hmm. like the two of them like that was really inspiring to see that you know that teamwork mm -hmm. and from there it sparked a sparked the need in me to continue fighting I want to know more but I just want to take a step back because we have people listening from all around the world and they may not know the CNIB or the MCSS so I know that the CNIB is the Canadian National Institute for the Blind. Barbara, can you let us know what the MCSS stands for? Oh, yes, good point. DBCS is Deaf Blind Community Services. And I'm still a member of their board since 2010 until now, continue to advocate for funding for deaf blind individuals. Great, thank you. And you mentioned that you have a conference coming up in 2030. 
Can you tell us what the conference will be about? Yes, um, I, I just know a little bit of details because we're just getting started. We just started in June. Um, the plan is in 2030 in Atlanta. What, it's an hour flight uh, out of uh, from where Helen Keller's birthplace is. The idea is to have a week-long conference. It's going to be NADVA. Yeah, NADVA. So it'll be National Association of Deaf Blind America. N-A-D-B-A. Yeah. N-A-D-B-A. I'm trying to remember all the acronyms. It's hard, right? <laughs> um, so, yeah. So I'm on the mem- I'm a member. I'm now I'm on the committee. So now we're starting our first conference there. So we're planning it to be a week-long conference. We're hoping, and it's also going to be Helen Keller's 150th birth year, I guess. Um, so we're going to try to plan it all in the same week and have multiple events, you know, in the in like a hotel area. Um, I, I just need to make sure that it's all accessible and all that. So I don't really have many details, but in 2025, I will um, have the set place of where it will be, the dates and times, and I will let uh, the Canadian Keller Helen Keller Center advertise it through their um, means where they have contacts to let all the deafblind individuals know. Well, you'll have to keep us posted. And if you have any information about the conference, please let us know and we can put it in the show notes. Yes, absolutely. I will. And now a message from our sponsor. Discover AMI's collection of podcasts created by and for the blind and partially sighted community. Visit ami.ca to learn more. AMI entertains, informs, and empowers. And now back to the podcast. So we've been talking a little bit about your life outside of you know your husband and your kids and i want to know a little bit more about your journey as a mother can you tell us a little bit about how that happened what was maybe different for you as a deafblind person just what was your motherhood journey like Hmm. my journey sorry intervener clarification yes got it um my life as a mother um, it's hard because <laughs> children um, are sensitive as well, right? And they get upset, especially seeing their mother's uh, vision fields at decrease and not understanding that. And, you know, I remember that growing up, my kids kept saying, I don't want you to continue to get more blind. You know, and as they saw that, it really affected them. And I had to explain to them all the time that this is not something I can fix. There's nothing I can do about this. We just need to enjoy that the time that we have and try to make the best of it, you know? Now that they're older, they understand that. But when they were children, it was really, really, really hard. You know, and like now there, there seems to be some positive news coming right from STEM fields um, idea. So that's also encouraging as well, you know. But a lot of times my family, now that see that I'm completely blind, they can, they, they're inspired by that too as well, right? They see the positives and how I'm able to do anything, you know. Um, in 19... 19- Sorry, 1998 to 2002, I wanted to get my high school diploma. I didn't have my high school diploma. I had my children when I was really young. Um, so I never finished my high school. So I had um, like a six and eight-year-old and then two teenagers, a 16 and an 18-year-old. And I went back to get my high school diploma. Uh, my husband would work overnights and I had my four children. Oh, that was a struggle. I tried my best, but I made it. I continued to develop and I continued to increase on my 
my literal knowledge and, you know, my homework and my math and my English, you know, and that, that, because I found it very frustrating with my children and I wasn't able to help them. And I wanted to be able to help them at school, but I was completely exhausted. I will tell you that my teachers were shocked that I was able to make it through the day, but I did it. It took me two years, you know, with four children and I graduated. I got my high school diploma. I upped all my grades, you know, and that's with four children, four young children. So I really can say that you can do anything you put your mind to. That's the important thing. And it's important to be a good, positive role model role model for your children, right? Your children seeing that. I think that was very influential on them too, seeing their mom go back and better herself and be able to do anything regardless of whatever comes along your way. That's incredible. Hats off to you. That's, <laughs> I can't imagine how much work it was being a mother to four kids and going back to school. So I'm just in awe. How are they this? <laughs> yeah, uh, it was a very long day because it was a full day, full day of school, 8.30 to 4.30, right? So that is on top of my parenting. <laughs> wow. I'm thinking about people listening into the podcast who may have a disability and are thinking about being a parent, but might be feeling a little nervous about it. Do you have any advice for them? Uh, you want children? If you're, uh, just go for it. Just try to be positive. That's the most important thing. You know, like there's, there's struggles for sure. Right. Uh, it's important to have a good supportive teamwork and support where you have, whichever as a partner or as your family, you know, because it's, again, hard, especially with what your visual visual field may be. And it is challenging, that's for sure. But you would just do the best that you can with the tools that you're given. And you just try to continue to improve on that. You know, it's, it's not perfect. It's not great. A communication is very important, right? Because kids are hard. Kids are hard. And they get frustrated a lot. And they they're just their emotions, right? They have a lot of emotions and you try to be as positive as you can, but that's hard for your child to see that you're deaf blind. But at the same time, showing them how successful you are, it really helps them as well. Uh, we live uh, close to Milton. Uh, they have a deaf school there. It's called EC Jury. And uh, I actually approached them. And they had four children who had Usher syndrome that lived in Mississauga. And I wanted to help in um talk to the parents as well and talk to the children because the children were really having a hard time understanding and accepting, you know, their disability. Right. But at that time, I remember that the teachers did they, cause there's a confidentiality, all those kinds of things, but I just wanted to show them and I was able to, to, to show them to see, look, I'm a successful woman. I'm married. I have children. I'm able to do what I need. I have my own family, you know, like being diagnosed with Usher syndrome isn't, it, it isn't as debilitating as you would think. Like I'm just a member of society as everybody else. It just takes me a little bit longer to do things, you know, like pitying and feeling sad for people. That's, that doesn't help you. That doesn't get you anywhere in life. Right. Um, so that's, that's, that's frustrating, but you just got to show that you can do anything you want. You put your mind to. I think that's a good point to make in terms of the fact that there are a lot of myths out there about being deafblind or having a disability. I think a big one that able-bodied people have is being deafblind, that there's just so many barriers and things that you're not able to do. So I like how you constantly tell the world that, no, that's not true. I can do whatever I want. 
are there any other myths that you'd like to bust about being deafblind or disabled or just in general? Um, yes, um, I know uh, for, for driving, right? So uh, people who actually are deaf, but I'm deafblind, obviously, but uh, there are deaf people that were feared of not being able to drive, right? Like I, I have to make that, that acceptance that I'm not able to drive. That's when it, that's, that's a hard one. That is definitely a, a, the truth that I can't see. I can't drive, but we need to find other ways to navigate ourselves, you know, to get out and around, you know, it doesn't mean that I'm stuck at home and I'm not doing anything. Like, you know, there's taxis, there's wheeltrans, there's interveners. I have interveners that take me anywhere where I need to go. Right. So there are other modes of transportation. I remember people thinking that me not being able to drive would mean I'm not be able to do anything and I'm home alone all the time. Right. But that's not the case. Like you need to, think outside of the box, right? And try to find different ways and help you cope and that'll help you try to stay positive, right? And that's where I participate in anything I can, like volunteering, I volunteer wherever I can. Obviously, I, I would rather be paid employed, um, but it's really, really hard to find employment as a deafblind individual, you know? People think that you're not able to do things and that's really frustrating. You know, my mom saw that and saw that for my future and didn't want that for me. And she didn't, so she didn't want to pity me. So she actually, I think that that was the way I was raised. I was the way I was raised to be able to do things on my own and fight for myself. And, you know, in the end about the biking, right? Like I stopped on my own. That was my own choice because I realized I had to, obviously, but um, I, I, I did it, even though the people around me said I couldn't. Just remember, everybody has different struggles and different gifts, right? And different skills, right? Some people are incredibly great at biking. I don't know. Some people are really good at fixing things or doing anything with and not being able to see. Like every single person brings something different to the table. Every skill is needed. Um, and, and we just, as we all work together, we can do that together. Mm -hmm. No, for sure. I like your point around the fact that everyone is, no matter whether you have a disability or you're able-bodied, everyone in the world is good at some things and maybe not good at others. And it's the point is about using our strengths to help each other. Absolutely. That's right. So I have one more question for you for today, one that we haven't really talked very much about, but I think at the beginning of the show, you mentioned that you use a braille display. Can you talk a little bit about the technology that you use in your everyday life? Yes, um, I use a braille display um, since 2014. Before that, I was able to use a computer with Zoom text, but from 2014, I wasn't able to see anymore. So I, can, I transitioned to braille display. So that's how I access all my emails and news and there's a lot of things that are still not accessible, which is really um, frustrating. I use a, an iPhone and every update that comes, any iOS updates that come, there's always some sort of glitch that mess up my Braille display and freeze it, which is incredibly frustrating, you know, a lot of times because then you need an intervener to help you because it's frozen or stuck or there's a pop-up again that I can't see or I'm not able to navigate. So I'm hoping that one day in the future, iOS will just be smooth sailing. Um, iOS 7, I remember, was great. Now we're iOS 14, and it's it's a uh, there's always a problem. So that's frustrating. But uh, like I, I use it to read. I read uh, I read a lot of ebooks on my Braille display. 
Um, I read the Bible, you know, I navigate the internet on my Braille display. So I obviously prefer to read with my eyes. Like it would be a lot quicker. Braille um, is slower and it freezes a lot. So I'm dependent upon it, but uh, it's a skill that I've gotten much better at. Can you tell me when you learned to read Braille? Because I know you mentioned you had some vision when you were younger. So when did you start learning Braille? I was very behind in Braille <laughs> um, because I didn't want to think about it. Honestly, I was in denial and I was avoidance. And I was like, no, I can I can see. I'll be able to see for a long time. I'll just work through it. So I kept putting it off and putting it off. And then I just, my, I couldn't as much as I wanted to. I couldn't. So I'd lost my vision. And uh, I worked with a teacher to try to do Braille with the books, with the large print books. and the, But I hadn't used the Braille display, just the regular Braille books. But I found that the way that they were teaching you was really like, it like took a long time. It was, so I went on my own and I emailed some, uh, some people like deafblind people. This is regarding, sorry, uh, how to navigate with the Braille display and how to use commands. So I did it on my own. I figured out the Braille display completely on my own and how to use the commands for the iOS. Because the way that they were trying to teach you was really, really long. And I would forget all the, the keys to remember. Um, so I, I do things better on my own, <laughs> figuring it up on myself. So um, also depending on other deafblind as well, asking them questions and people who know from the basis. Symbols. Yeah, there's some symbols on Braille displays that that um, I, I don't know yet, like brackets and like, uh, you know, I know most of them, but some of them that come on long and I, and I don't recognize them, but I don't find that important. <laughs> but I know the letters and all the big stuff. So that's the important one. Mm-hmm. That's neat that, you know, I'm again impressed because like you mentioned about getting your high school diploma. It just sounds like you're a person who sets your mind to doing something and will get it done one way or another. Yes, absolutely. I was supposed to finish obviously young, but um, I had a lot of problems in school and I wasn't able to, 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 to access schools the same way as everybody else. And I found it very frustrating. I was, and I actually was depressed. I, I left school when I was 18. I uh, was a dropout. I had a lot of stress, a lot of headaches. And then I realized later in life that if, you know, that people would pick on me and bully me because they didn't understand what my visual impairment was, you know, and now I'm older and I understand and I don't let those kinds of things affect me. And, uh, but when I went to adult continuing education services, everybody there was adults. And so that I found a much more welcoming environment and where I was able to succeed and get everything I needed. Mm -hmm. I'm glad, even though it took a little while, you got to where you wanted to be at the end of the day. Yeah. I think that's almost all the time we have for today. Is there anything else you want people listening in to know about you or your journey or any advice you have for them? Um, okay. I want everyone to know that um, if you have children who are deafblind, don't be scared. You know, if you hear that diagnosis, don't be scared. It's there, everything else is fine. It's just, they're able to do anything that everybody else is, is able to do. It just, they might need some help or it might take a little bit longer. What's most important is just to give them lots of love. Um, and strongly just believe in what you can and what skill sets you have. You know, again, as I said before, we don't all have the same skills, 
but we all do have some skills that can help us. And if we work together with other people, we can learn from each other and improve continuously, right? And to allow them to be involved in everything as they possibly can. Like any, don't be worried. Don't hold any barriers. Don't hold them back. You know, the first time I joined advocacy, I made a lot of mistakes and I learned from that. And I mean, look at where I am now, right? It takes years of experience. It takes time. You know, it's just like uh, the Braille display, right? Like I started learning and I put it off as much as I could. But once I did, it opened up a whole new world to me, right? So just be involved in the community. Don't be scared, you know, join things, you know, any community, join boards, you know, even if people are saying you're blind, you can't do it. Like, no, you can figure it out. Like my brother, he's deaf blind and he plays hockey. He's a goalie. So, you know, like it's hard for him, um, but they use a special puck. Um, you know, and they said to him that he should have stopped when he was a teenager, but, um, he didn't get going as long as he could. And there was nothing wrong with that. Right. Like he, you know, I, I played baseball. I tried to play baseball, but I missed the ball all the time. But, you know, like that experience was great. Just being part of a team and just being able to meet people. And, you know, so I, I found that that didn't work for me or swimming, right? Like I love swimming. That's something I do all the time or reading. Reading is something I love. And that's opened up my my mind so many different things as well right i've learned so much from that the important thing is not to think that i can't that's the important thing is that i can try to be positive and just try to realize that you can do anything you want it just might have to do it a little differently i think that's great advice well thank you so much for coming on the show today barbara if people want to know more about you and your work where can they go to find you um i don't have uh social media or anything like that um but maybe that's something that i can start in the in the future i'll talk to my intervener and see if we can set something up so people can contact me right sounds good well thanks again it was such a pleasure getting to know you barbara and i wish you all the best on whatever journey you set your mind to next thank you thank you absolutely let's let rosita take some credit here let's Hi, my name is Rosita Foley. I work for the CNIB DeafBlind Intervenor Services, and I'm Barbara Davis's intervenor for today. We've got lots of links to resources around DeafBlindness in this episode's description, including where to find intervenor services, DeafBlind organizations across Canada and the United States, more reading on Usher syndrome, and Barbara and Rosita's contact information, so you'll want to check those out. Well, we hear the music, which means it's time to wrap up yet another episode of Living Blind. We're glad you can join us. I really hope that you enjoyed this interview with Barbara as much as I enjoyed doing it for you. Special thanks to Barbara Davis, Rosita Foley, our producer Jeffrey Rainey, executive producer Deborah Gold, and the entire team at Balance for Blind Adults. Feel free to subscribe and give us a rating and review on whatever platform you're listening on. And don't forget to let us know how we're doing. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter by searching Balance for Blind Adults and chat with other listeners in the Living Blind Listeners Facebook group. You can also email the podcast with any comments, questions, or suggestions you might have at livingblindpodcast at balancefba.org. For more information about Balance for Blind Adults and our programs and services, or to access the show notes and transcription of this episode, please visit us at www.balancefba.org. I'm Naomi Hazlitt, and this has been Living Blind, 
and Duff with Barbara Davis. Thanks for listening. Are you interested in supporting Balance for Blind Adults? Visit our brand new Ways to Give page at www.balancefba.org. Here, you can learn about social media birthday celebrations, hosting your own event, donating your car, honoring a loved one's memory, and celebrating important milestones like graduations or retirements. There are other great ways to give, like gifts of securities and leaving a gift in your will. And of course, we are always grateful for monthly and one-time gifts. Thank you for helping Balance provide an open world for persons who are blind or living with sight loss.